When death draws near, right. family gather, don't they? When we know that a loved one is not long for this world, family come close and they lean in and they hang on every word that is spoken. Each last word, though often brief and sometimes uttered in painful gasps or just a whisper, is precious and it's savoured. When time is short and words are few, we tend not to be verbose. The words we use are often full of meaning and they reveal much about the one who is dying. They are a departing gift to those that we love. And so for the next five weeks, in the lead up to Resurrection Sunday, we're going to gather as the family of God and we're going to lean in closely and hang on every last word from our Saviour, Jesus Christ. His last words were brief. They were uttered in his last moments of agony on the cross, but they are rich in meaning and they reveal much to us about the heart of our Saviour. They are his departing gift to us. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 34, we'll begin this morning. Luke 23, 32 to 34. It's just a brief reading this morning. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the other criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now the sayings of Jesus from the cross are known as the seven last words. And they're gathered from across the four Gospels. Three of them are found only in Luke's account. Three appear only in the Gospel of John. And the other saying appears in the accounts of both Matthew and Mark. Now the number seven is widely known as a number of completeness and perfection, both in the physical and in the spiritual sense. And it is widely used in the Bible. In fact, it's used 860 times in the Bible. And the number takes much of its meaning from being tied up with creation. So in the beginning of things, God created the world and he did it in seven days. There are seven days in the week and the seventh day is the Sabbath, God's day. In Revelation, at the end of things, we see seven letters to seven churches. Seven spirits before the throne, seven seals of God's judgment, seven angels with seven trumpets, and on and on it goes. Revelation is full of sevens, and they speak of completeness. Seven churches, the completeness of the body of Christ, seven seals on the scroll, the fullness of God's wrath. And between its beginning and its end, the Bible is also littered with sevens, which speak in some way of completion and completeness. Seven times the Israelites marched around Jericho on the seventh day with seven priests in front of them blowing seven trumpets before the walls came crumbling down. Seven is the number of times Naaman 
was required to bathe in the Jordan River for his cleansing to be complete. John's Gospel speaks of seven signs, proverbs of seven things the Lord hates. So it should hardly come as any surprise that when Jesus speaks from the cross, he does so seven times, bringing to perfect completion his work of salvation on earth and in fulfilment of all that was written about him. You know, the prophet Isaiah predicted these first words that Jesus would speak from the cross some 745 years before the crucifixion of Christ. So to put that into perspective, that's the same as someone today predicting the dying words of a person in the year 2764. So highly unlikely is it that I think it just has to be divinely inspired. Isaiah wrote, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So I'm going to take you through this last word of Jesus as he spoke it, just word by word. And the first word is Father. And it's the beginning of a prayer. Incidentally, his last word is also a prayer, the seventh word, which we'll come to as we get closer to Good Friday. And so we see in this example of Jesus, this whole crucifixion scene bracketed or enclosed in prayer. And I think that alone speaks volumes to us about how drawing near to God um, in times of trouble will enable us to be sustained and to find strength to forgive those who have hurt us. Here in this time of torment, Jesus chose not to look down and curse those who were persecuting him, but to look up and cry out to God. And the word he chose to use is not almighty Lord or king of heaven or any other fancy or important sounding title, but simply father. And it is a word that speaks of relationship and intimacy. Here in his darkest hour, Jesus called out to God as father. And it was a term that came naturally to him because he used it constantly in his prayer life during his ministry on earth. Jesus always addressed God in prayer as Father. At times, he took this intimacy even one step further, um, using the term Abba, which means Daddy or Dad, when he prayed to Abba, Father, as recorded in the, the Gospel of Mark during his time in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. And Jesus taught us to pray exactly like this when in response to the disciples' request for him to teach them how to pray, Jesus began his prayer with our Father. He taught us that God is not distant and that as children we can and should address him as warmly as any child would speak to a loving parent. The second word he spoke is forgive. Now, few of us will ever come close to understanding the physical pain that Christ endured. Perhaps some 
who might have been near death in prisoner of war camps or being tortured in overseas prisons or offshore detention centres might understand something of it. But for most of us, this physical torment that Christ endured on the cross is far outside the realm of our experience, but perhaps not completely beyond our imagining because we all know something, just a little bit, about physical pain. But I am certain that none of us have even the slightest understanding of what Jesus was going through in the spiritual realm as he prepared himself to become sin and to experience the separation and all that that, that would entail. I think perhaps the songwriter Robin Mark captures something of it in his song, The Wonder of Your Cross, when he writes, Were heaven's praises silent in those hours of darkness, your Holy Spirit brooding round that empty throne, until the declaration, he is risen, you are risen, Jesus, he is not dead, behold, he lives forevermore. And so it's here at this point, with his body recoiling from the shock and the pain of the physical evil being inflicted upon him, with his mind struggling to come to terms with the spiritual torment of the sin of the world closing in around him, that Jesus looks out at the scene and calls on the Father to forgive. And the Greek word used here, translated forgive, means literally to let go or to send away. In the midst of his torment, Jesus is asking the Father to let go of their sins, not to hold on to them so that they can't be counted against them. And how against our own natural instincts that would be? We would want what we would perceive to be justice, wouldn't we? We'd be screaming out for God to strike them down and to take away our pain. We would hold on to those sins of others and the hurts that they have inflicted on us and let them burn inside us, eating away at us like a poison. There could be no greater injustice than Christ crucified, and yet Jesus simply said, Father, forgive. And he attached no strings to his request. He didn't say, Father, forgive that one over there. He was forced into his part in this. He deserves forgiveness. And he didn't say, Father, forgive them if they'll be nice to me now. He simply said, Father, forgive. And as followers of Christ, we are called to do likewise. No two ways about it and no strings attached. <coughs> and so we come to the third word, them. Father, forgive them. And this is an absolutely fascinating word which has caused much debate among many scholars for many years Exactly who are the them that Jesus is referring to? You see, the text doesn't really give us many clues. But there's certainly no shortage of candidates here. The first and most obvious candidates might well be the soldiers who'd been involved in his arrest and his flogging and were now hanging round the base of the cross casting lots for his clothing. It was the soldiers who'd cruelly mocked Jesus, placing a twisted crown of thorns on his head and calling out, Hail, King of the Jews. 
Certainly they had committed the physical act of crucifixion, for it was them who nailed him to the cross and now waited for the job to be completed. So perhaps it was the soldiers that Jesus was praying for. But what about Pilate and Herod Antipas? Both had found Jesus innocent of the crimes with which he had been charged. And yet, against the law and bowing to the pressure of the mob and the religious leaders, Pilate had given the order for the crucifixion against his own better judgment. Desperately trying to hold on to what little power he had, it was he who enacted the death penalty whilst at the same time washing his hands of the matter. Perhaps it was Pilate or Herod for whom Jesus was praying. Maybe it was the chief priests. They were the instigators of the crucifixion after all. They'd questioned his authority. They'd looked for an opportunity to arrest him. And they were delighted with Judas's offer to betray Jesus. They even agreed to pay him for it. They had ordered the arrest. They'd looked for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death and they'd found none. And they'd sent him off to Pilate and stirred up the crowd against him. So maybe it was the chief priests that Jesus was praying for. Or maybe the crowd. The crowd who cried out with one voice, away with this man, release Barabbas. The crowd who ignored Pilate's appeals to release them and continued shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The crowd whose demands ultimately prevailed, sending Jesus to his death on the cross. Perhaps it was this crowd for whom Jesus was praying. But what about the Pharisees? His nemesis throughout his ministry on earth. They were constantly opposing Jesus, questioning him, seeking to trip him up using the law. They requested signs and even accused him of working with Satan. They were offended by his teaching and they openly opposed him. It was they who were the first to plot Jesus' death. Was Jesus praying for them as he hung on the cross? What about his disciples? Where were they? Only hours earlier, they had emphatically pledged never to disown Jesus, even if it cost them their own lives. We read in Mark 14, 27 to 31, Jesus saying to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. All of them insisted that even if they would have to die for him, they would never disown him. And yet 24 hours later, where were they now? One of them had betrayed him. One of them had denied him. And the rest had scattered at his arrest. Only John is mentioned in this scene played out at the foot of the cross. 
Those closest to him, his inner circle, who had travelled with him, who had witnessed his many miracles, benefited from his instruction, these were the ones that denied, betrayed and deserted him at his time of need. Could this prayer have been directed at his disciples? Now, as I was praying, praying and preparing this message for today and thinking through exactly who Jesus might have been praying for and exactly who was responsible for the crucifixion, my mind, in the way that it does, went straight to a much-loved classic children's story, Who Sank the Boat? Have any of you read it? Yep, quite a few have read it. It's a Pamela Allen classic and it's a tale of five very different animal friends, a cow, a donkey, a pig, a sheep and a tiny mouse who decide to take their boat out from the jetty and journey into the deeper waters of the bay. One by one they get into the boat. The boat wobbles and with each wobble and each entry into the boat the question is asked, do you know who sank the boat? Now, all of my children have loved this book, even more so when after a few readings they actually do know who sank the boat, and so they would sit excitedly nodding <laughs> when with each page I would say, do you know who sank the boat? Well, first into the boat, taking prime position was Cow, the would-be leader of the group. Cow was followed by Donkey, the most practical member of the group who busied herself balancing her weight and that of the cow to steady the boat. Donkey was followed by Pig, nervous and flighty. Pig was followed by Sheep, who came along for the ride but was clearly more interested in her knitting than the journey ahead. Finally, Mouse, the smallest of all, boards the boat. The boat capsizes and the book concludes with you do know who sank the boat. Now, in the children's story, the sinking boat is all Mouse's fault. And I think Mouse gets a really rough deal because all of them paid their part in this calamity. After all, had Mouse got in by himself, the boat wouldn't even have rocked and they'd all be still afloat. And so it is with us. We like to point the finger at the soldiers at the chief priests, at Pilate, at the shouting crowd or any of the other groups that I've already mentioned. We want one or more of them to be the mouse in this story. It was them. They did it, not us. We would never. But of course we know that we had a very real part to play in this crucifixion scene because we are the very reason that death on a cross was necessary. As, Mark put, as it's put in Mark 10:45, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So perhaps it is even for the likes of us that Jesus prayed, because sin is sin. The sin of the chief priest, the sin of Pilate, the sin of the crowd, the sin of the disciples and my own sin it is all sin and the cross exists because of the sin of all of us. And so I think Jesus has each one of us in mind when he prays, Father, forgive them. We, collectively, past, present and future, all humanity are the ones I think he is asking the Father 
to forgive. The final part of this word from the cross, for they do not know what they do. In the light of all that we've heard from these various groups, we might well ask, in what sense do they not know what they do? The soldiers, they knew exactly what they were doing. They'd done a crucifixion many, many times before. They were well aware of the agony of this type of death and they knew exactly what Jesus was going to experience at their hands. Their mocking taunts indicate that they also understood very clearly the false charges against him. So in what sense did they not know? By his own words, it was clear that Pilate understood he was condemning an innocent man to death. In fact, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd to demonstrate that he was washing his hands of the matter, bowing instead to their pressure. The chief priests knew they were sending an innocent man to death. They themselves had looked for false testimony and not found any. The crowd knew what they were asking for. They wanted a murderer released to them. The Pharisees had plotted for a long time to overthrow Jesus. They had heard his teachings and they were supposedly the experts in the scripture. They, of all people, should have known what they were doing. And if the Pharisees didn't know, surely the disciples didn't, did. They were the nearest and dearest to Jesus, his innermost circle. They had been the beneficiaries of his most intimate teaching. Surely they knew the one that they were betraying and deserting. Of course they did. They all did, but what they lacked was any real understanding of the magnitude of the situation and exactly who it was that they had crucified. They did not understand the earth-shattering significance of what it was that they were about to do. And Paul explains it like this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so we see in these first words of Christ from the cross, the mercy of God extended to a sinful people. Each of these groups of people mentioned previously had more than enough sin in their lives to condemn them. And God doesn't overlook that sin, for he is a God of justice who cannot abide with sin, and so sin has to be paid for. But here in this prayer of Jesus, God has found a way to make forgiveness possible because he loves them and because he knows that if they truly understood who Christ is, they would exalt him among men rather than lifting him up on a cross to die. He knows that if they truly understood the depth to which they have fallen in their rejection of Christ, they would beg for his mercy. Here we see in his great mercy, he finds a way to forgiveness that none of these groups deserved. And so by extension, if there could still be forgiveness for them, there will still be forgiveness for us, for our hearts are just as tainted by sin as theirs and we, like they, also do not truly know what we do. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 
For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even if I am fully known. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. These are powerful, powerful words. And what were the results of this forgiveness? What were the results of this prayer of Jesus? We know the prayer was answered, for we see the immediate outworking of it in the lives of those around the cross. And it is an eternal prayer, for it lives on and continues to find its answer in the life of every believer. A criminal was promised paradise. Either side of Jesus hung two criminals. One mocked him. The other affirmed the divinity of Christ in his request to remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man received the forgiveness that Jesus prayed for and he became an heir with Christ in the kingdom of God. A centurion at the foot of the cross declared his faith. Upon seeing how Jesus died, he exclaimed, Surely this man was the Son of God. Likewise, a member of the Sanhedrin declared his faith, not in words, but by what he did. In asking Pilate for the body of Jesus and ensuring that it was entombed with dignity. And at the cross, by these words of Christ, the way was prepared for a much-loved disciple, Peter, to be restored. Peter, the one who had earlier denied knowing Jesus three times and then gone out and wept bitterly when the realisation of what he had done set in. Peter received the forgiveness of Christ and then went on to lead many, many others to faith in Christ with his call to repent and be baptised, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And in this first word of Jesus, a way was opened for God, the perfect one, to dwell with man by the forgiveness of sin, which is available to all who come to faith in Christ. Ask and you will receive, says Jesus. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And I stand before you today as yet another answer to that prayer of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Much has been said about this first word from the cross, but I think all of it can be summarised in just one word. Because this first word of Jesus from the cross is grace. It is pure unadulterated grace it was and remains today undeserved and freely given to us all ours for the taking father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing now it's wonderful to reflect on this gift of forgiveness isn't it it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside to know that we have a savior who would take our sin upon himself and in the very moment of doing that, say, Father, forgive them. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing as he headed towards the cross. 
John records these words of Jesus to some Jewish believers. I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And at the cross, Jesus made a way for us to find a permanent place in the family of God. Everything that we spoke about last week on camp, everything that Pastor Gary spoke about here, all of it was possible only because of this first word of Jesus from the cross. And most of us can, after a time, get our heads at least partly around that. But it's the second part of this verse that we struggle with. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I believe that this is our responsibility under grace to live like we are truly free. To live lives full of joy, full of peace, full of hope, to live unburdened, not condemned, not under our obligation, not ashamed, not unworthy, and definitely not depending on our own works. When we live like this, truly free, when we embrace our place in the family of God, then we will blossom and the fruits of the Spirit will be evident in our lives. And it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But for so many of us, it's not. And it reminds me of a character from that classic movie, The Shawshank Redemption. How many have seen that? I think most people have seen it. Do you remember Brooks? Brooks, the prisoner who had served as the prison librarian during his 50-year incarceration. And after 50 years in prison, on his release, we might have expected him to embrace his freedom and to make up for all that lost time enjoying himself. Instead, we see Brooks struggle, unable to embrace freedom, and eventually he hangs himself. And one of the things that so many of us struggle with is our own inability to let go of the hurts that others have caused us. Rather than embracing freedom, we retreat to the familiar confines of bitterness and bitter ground produces bitter fruit. The fruit of the spirit cannot grow in that sort of environment. One final story before we conclude. A good friend of mine told it many years ago and I'm pretty sure most of you will have heard it before. It's a story of a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And so he calls them before him and one of them comes before him who owes an enormous amount to the king. And he comes begging for mercy. And the master grants his request, releases him from his debt and sends him away. And as he's sent away, he finds a fellow servant who owed him a tiny amount compared to what this man had owed the king. And he grabs him and he chokes him. And this fellow servant begs him for mercy, for more time to pay back the debt. But none was granted. Instead, this man had his debtor thrown into prison. And so when the king heard how the first servant had treated the second, he asked that he be brought back before him 
And he said to him, you wicked servant, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. It was, of course, Jesus that told this story and he concluded it by saying some pretty piercing words. He said, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you can forgive your brother from your heart. Our debt was enormous and yet the King of Heaven cancelled it. If we could grasp just how enormous that debt was and how significant are these first words of Jesus from the cross, life for all of us would be transformed. John Piper is a well-known Christian author, teacher and he's Chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary in the USA and he puts it this way. He says, If the forgiveness that we received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is so ineffective in our hearts that we are bent on holding unforgiving grudges and bitterness against someone, we are not a good tree. And I guess by implication that means we won't produce any good fruit. We are not saved, he says. We don't cherish this forgiveness. We don't trust this forgiveness. We don't embrace and treasure this forgiveness. We are hypocrites. We are just mouthing. We haven't ever felt the piercing joyful wonder that God paid the life of his son. Now perhaps that's a little harsh, maybe it is, but I'm sure of this one thing. Until we, like Jesus, can look out from our pain and our hurt to those who have inflicted it upon us and see them as Jesus saw them, until we can do that, we will never know the freedom that Jesus spoke about and we will never be able to fully share in the ongoing ministry of Christ on earth. For first and foremost, as Jesus' words have shown us today, his is a ministry of reconciliation. And there are no double agents in the kingdom of God. You cannot be an effective agent of reconciliation, man to God, whilst at the same time harbouring anger or hatred, man to man. Why, you might say? Well, to put it in the terms that I am most familiar with, horticultural ones, bitter ground is good for only one thing, producing bitter fruit. It is no place for the Holy Spirit to dwell. Now one last thing has intrigued me about this first word of Jesus and that is that Jesus had authority on earth to forgive sins. He had done it himself during his time on earth. To the paralysed man, remember, lowered by his friends on a mat through the roof and to the sinful woman who poured perfume at his feet while he ate at Simon the Pharisee's house, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Yet in his darkest hour, here he calls on the Father to forgive. And I think that this is a great starting point for all of us who struggle to forgive those who have hurt us and to truly embrace our own freedom. Begin by calling on the Father 
and take a step towards embracing that freedom that was intended for you. And there's a wonderful song that I've chosen that speaks of this freedom that we have in Christ. So if you would join me, we're going to sing it now as a song of thanks and praise to God for this awesome work of forgiveness that he has accomplished on the cross and the freedom that is now ours in Christ. <laughs> 